certainly appreciate the invitation to come and be with you this week. We've been looking forward to this meeting for quite a while, not only to be with the Bethays, but also to be with the Malloys. Reagan and Catherine uh, left us. I guess we left you and then you left Tuscaloosa. Uh, Reagan was with us at Northwood in Tuscaloosa for about five years, I guess it was, and just really come to love and appreciate him and Mary Catherine moved up after they got married and I know y'all are very thankful to have them and we're certainly been looking forward to being with them. Also getting to be with Clay and Sandra. Uh, I, I wouldn't have, have expected if I just met Douglas that Douglas and Anna would be interested in each other. He grew up hunting and fishing and Anna, I mean her father doesn't do any of those things. One time, uh, Anna was out on a hunt with uh, Douglas, and one of the members said, what's she, what's she hunting? And I said, I think she's hunting a husband. So, uh, but we, we couldn't be more thankful for Douglas. He has been just such a blessing, not only to Anna, but to me and Adrian, and been to Josh, brother he's never had, and uh, Katie. But we're, uh, we're thankful to be with Clay and Sandra. Thanks so much of them. And uh, I'm thankful to have Adrian with me this week. She doesn't normally travel with me on my meetings, but uh, so thankful to have her with me, and I'm thankful that she could she could be with you. And I I, I hope you get the chance to, to meet her. She is definitely the better half of me. Um, as was announced, and as you've heard this week, is going to be about the church. Some of these things are things that you have well for some of you, I should say. You've heard these lessons all your life, and this is not going to be anything new. I'm not going to say anything this week that you haven't heard before, but for some of you, this might be new. And I don't know who you are, but, but whether this is old hat to you or whether it's new, if you have questions, we're just going to be doing uh, uh, an overview of a lot of material as it pertains to the church. Uh, but wherever you are uh, on the continuum of, of hearing these things, Feel free to come to me after and ask questions. If, if I tell you that's a good question, that probably means I have no idea. And I'll just tell you, that's my favorite answer. I have no idea. But uh, I will try to, as best I can, turn to the Bible and show you from the Scriptures what I believe God wants us to be doing. And that's all we're trying to do here. If you're here with us for the first time, if you're visiting, if you've never been in a church quite like this before, probably notice that we don't use instruments in our worship. That's usually the first thing people notice. Uh, if you're with us on a Lord's Day, you'll notice that we take the Lord's Supper every first day of the week. You may notice some other things that are a little bit different than what you've experienced in the past. We want you to ask questions because the reason we don't use the instrument is very intentional. It's conviction. It's not just preference. The reason why we take the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week is because we believe that's what the Bible teaches us to do. And we're going to try as best we can, as best I can this week, to explain from the Scriptures what uh, the early church did, what they taught, what they were told to do by the Lord. Um, and so there's no bad question. And like I said, if, if there's a question you ask, I don't know, I'll tell you, I don't know. But I'll do my best uh, to, to answer any question you have. Um, this first lesson is really just kind of a foundational lesson. We're going to talk about authority, the authority of Christ and his apostles. And that's where this begins. And by the way, let me just say this before we get 
farther in this series or this lesson. What we're talking about this week is not the center of Christianity. Now, it's important, um, but, but the center of Christianity is, is Christ and Him crucified, the, the gospel. Jesus died, He was buried, He rose the third day. That's the center. But we know what happened after He was raised. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. And because of that, He has all authority, which means everything that Jesus says, we're going to do. That's part of our confession. I'm going to end the lesson talking about what is the confession when you become a Christian. What does that mean to say that Jesus Christ is Lord? But what it means is that you are, it's a statement of purpose. It's not just words that you say before you're baptized. It's a statement of, he is my king and everything he says. When it comes to my personal life, when it comes to my social life, my life at work, on the job, at school, my family, and when we gather together as, as Christians, we're going to seek as best we can to follow the instructions of our king because he has all authority. So we're going to talk about this that in this first lesson, kind of lay the foundation for all the rest of the lessons. So we're going to talk about the authority of Christ and his apostles. One more thing. If you didn't get a copy of this outline when you came in, I left it on the, the table in the back there. And... Uh, you can, you can fill in all, all the blanks you'll see on the PowerPoint. You can fill them in as we go. So let's begin with just a, a basic definition of what is authority. Uh, and this is a definition from uh, a dictionary. Authority is the power to enforce laws, to exact obedience, to command, determine, or judge. So think about it. Who is it that has that kind of authority? Well, we would say, you know, first thing you might think of is the government. The government has the authority to enforce laws, to exact obedience, <laughs> command, determine, or judge. I'm not sure that we, in the culture and the form of government that we have today, really appreciate what authority is. We live in a democratic republic where we elect the people who do these things, for the most part. We, we elect them. And so if we don't like the laws that are passed, we just vote for somebody else, right? That's not the way it was in the first century, and I think you know that. In fact, for most Christians, they weren't even citizens. Now, if you were like Paul, Paul was a citizen of the, the Roman government, and he had certain rights. We talk about rights that we have. Rights are only there for those who are citizens of any uh, country. Most Christians were just poor people. They were slaves. Many of them were slaves. They had no rights. And so they, they couldn't question those that were in authority over them, whether it was their master. They, if they didn't like their master, they couldn't just quit their job and go get another job. If they didn't like their government, they couldn't just protest or vote or, you know, I mean, you could raise up arms, and I guess people did that in, in, in those days as well. But, but for someone who is a slave, you don't have rights. You don't have any say. You do as you are told. And so when Jesus is presented as a king in Scripture who had all authority, then they know exactly what that means. And I think they have really a better appreciation uh, than we do today. We need to develop that kind of respect. 
for God, for Christ, and for his authority. Uh, and, and we're going to be looking for, for about half of this lesson. We're, we're going to be looking at uh, the book of Matthew and 1 Corinthians. We're going to begin in Matthew establishing what, what Matthew establishes, and that is the authority of Christ and his apostles. And then we're going to look at what that authority looks like in practical terms when we look at 1 Corinthians. But the Gospel of Matthew, as I said, highlights the authority of Christ. One of the themes that runs through the Gospel of Matthew is that Jesus is the son of David, that he is a king. He is the one promised uh, to David that the son after him would establish this eternal kingdom that would never be destroyed, <coughs> reigning over the nations. Um, and, and, uh, and this kingdom in the book of Matthew is called the kingdom of heaven meaning heaven's authority has come to earth and is reigning now in the world. And so we're going to look at that. So let's, let's begin with our first scripture as we look at the uh, authority of Christ. The very first verse of Matthew actually highlights this theme. When the, the book of Matthew begins, it begins with this genealogy for 17 or 18 verses. The first part of the first chapter is just a list of names. And this list of names is really important because of where it's going. Matthew 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Why beginning with David and Abraham? Well, because those were the two that the great promises were made. Abraham was promised that after him, his seed would bless all the families of the earth. And so Jesus' genealogy had to be traced back to show that God had fulfilled that promise. And Jesus was the son of David, indicating that he was the one that was promised to David that his seed after him would build a house for God's name and that his kingdom would be established forever. And that's what the Jews in Jesus' day in the first century were looking forward to. They were expecting, anticipating it. We read over in, in the Gospel of Luke that Simeon and Anna and, and several others in Jerusalem were awaiting and expecting the coming of the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Christ. And here the Gospel of Matthew opens saying that Jesus is the son of David. Uh, we're not going to look at this passage, but uh, we, we read about Jesus' baptism in Matthew chapter 3. And what is important and what's significant there is that when Jesus is baptized, the Spirit comes down in the form of a dove and alights upon him. It was prophesied that the Messiah, which literally Messiah means anointed one, would not be anointed with oil like most kings would be, he would be anointed with God's spirit, Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah 61. And, and Jesus, the spirit comes and alights upon him. And the voice from heaven says what? You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. That was a statement saying this is my son. The, the son of David, 2 uh, Samuel chapter 7, would also be God's son. And Psalm 2 is just uh, echoing 2 Samuel 7. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. The, the anointed one over this everlasting kingdom would be the son of God. And so Jesus' authority is, is underscored there. When you get to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus lays out the gospel of the kingdom. And the conclusion of the, the sermon, you have this little footnote that, that Matthew includes here. Uh, Matthew 7, verse 28, When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. When the scribes would teach, 
they would refer to the tradition of eld, uh, scribes that, or rabbis who had come before. They would, they would reference different rabbis and the interpretation those rabbis had of the law. That's, that's what, what would give weight and authority to the things that they taught. My interpretation of the law is right because I'm agreeing with the case law, as it were, with what this rabbi said and what this rabbi said. And that would give what they said weight. Jesus didn't speak like that. He just said, this is the way it is. And how could Jesus speak in that way? Because he's God. He spoke as one who had authority. And that's what was astonishing to the people. Uh, it's interesting the way Jesus interprets his miracles. In Matthew 8 and 9, we see a series of miracles, a lot of them healing miracles. And one of these miracles, Jesus heals a lame man, the lame man that was brought into the house uh, through the roof. If you remember that story, they dug a hole in the roof to let him down. The, the house was so full of people. And when Jesus saw their faith, these four men letting the, the man down, he said, man, your sins are forgiven. That's not the reason they were letting him down. They wanted Jesus to heal him of of his paralysis. <clears throat> and when he saw that the people were reasoning in their hearts, and of course he knew this is what was going to happen. Who does this guy think he is? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And they're not wrong about that. Only God can forgive sins. So who does, who does this man, Jesus, think he is forgiving this man of his sins? Listen to what Jesus says. Well, he says before this, which is easier to say? Man, your sins are forgiven? Or take up your bed and walk. Well, you can't see sins being forgiven, but you can tell if someone who's paralyzed is given the ability to walk. That you may know, Matthew 9, verse 6, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Very simple point. He did that, and it proved that Jesus had that kind of authority. Uh, one of the uh, criticisms that was made of Jesus is that he would heal on the Sabbath day. Or that his disciples in Matthew chapter 12 were plucking heads of grain and by rubbing it in their hands they're doing work and therefore they're breaking the Sabbath. So Jesus reasons with them and shows their hypocrisy and why they're wrong about that. But he, he ends this section, and this is what I want you to notice in Matthew 12 and verse 8. After he gives his response to this, this criticism that's unjust, Jesus did not break the, the Sabbath. He says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. <laughs> now, let me tell you what he's not saying first. Jesus is not saying when he says the, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, that I have the right to break the Sabbath. This is not like immunity, like an ambassador from a foreign country, a guy pulls him over <laughs> for speeding, he says... Do you know who I am? You know, I, can, I, can, I can break this law and you can't charge me with anything because I have diplomatic immunity. Jesus is not saying you can't raise this charge against me because I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. What Jesus is saying is something that nobody else would say or could say. Uh, Moses gave the Sabbath commandment from Mount Sinai, but he was not Lord of the Sabbath. He was the messenger that brought the Sabbath commandment down from God, but he was not Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is the one who gave the Sabbath. That's the sense in which he is Lord of the Sabbath. And I think what Jesus is saying here um, 
is if anybody knows how to interpret the Sabbath commandment, it would be me. I'm the one who gave it. I mean, it's really astonishing what Jesus is saying here. What kind of man is this who can forgive sins? What kind of man is this who can claim to be the Lord of the Sabbath? Only the Son of Man uh, can, can make this kind of statement. We'll talk about Son of Man in a minute. Jesus gives a series of parables in, in Matthew chapter 13. And in one of these parables, he, he talks about the wheat and the tares. He talks about a man who sowed a field and an enemy came in and sowed tares in the field. And the workers came back and said, "What, Master, what do you want us to do? Should we go, gap, should we go <laughs> cut down the tares? And he says, don't do that because you might cut down some of the wheat. Wait until the harvest, bring it all in, and then we'll separate the wheat from the tares and the tares will burn, and then the wheat will gather into the barn. And what Jesus says in the interpretation of this parable is that this separation of the wheat from the tares is talking about what He is going to do as the Son of Man at the end of the age. The Son of Man, verse 41 of Matthew 13, will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. What did we say was part of the definition of authority? The power to enforce laws, to exact obedience, command, determine, or judge. Who has the authority to judge? The Son of Man does. He's going to be the one who will separate the wheat from the tares, the sheep from the goats. Jesus has, as the Son of Man, that kind of authority. Uh, Matthew chapter 16, this is where, G, where Peter makes the good confession. The disciples come and ask him, you know, or, or Jesus asks the disciples, I should say, who do men say that I am? And they say, well, some people say Elijah, one of the prophets. But who do you say that I am? And then Peter replies, in verse 16, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, this confession of faith that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is a point that we'll make several times in this series. It's not our church. It's his church church. I will build my church. He has authority over his church. He has authority over his house because it's his church. It's his house. And then Matthew 24, stunning statement here in the context of Jesus telling about the destruction of Jerusalem. Jesus makes a bold statement. How sure are the predictions that Jesus makes about this destruction? I, I hear the the weatherman get on TV, and he says there's a 60% chance of rain. What does that mean? It means he has no idea. <laughs> it might rain. It might not rain. The weatherman never gets on the newscast and says, 100%, this is going to happen. It's going to snow tomorrow. It's going to rain tomorrow. It's going to be dry tomorrow. He will never say with that kind of confidence, I know what will happen. Anybody that speaks that confidently, you can know that they're lying. They're trying to sell you something, right? Jesus, but Jesus speaks in this way. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. 
Did anyone wonder whether or not the sun would come up this morning? I realize the Lord could come again, but you, you know what I'm saying, right? Did anyone wonder if that would happen? Do you realize that before GPS, the way sailors at sea, yeah. not having any visual cues, mountains, valleys, streams, anything like that, the way they would navigate the sea, they would look at the stars. And, and you know exactly where the stars ought to be because they follow the same exact pattern in, in, the, in the most minute, minute ways. The moon travels the same circuit around the sun. You can set your watch by it. You can set your life by it. These heavenly bodies, Jesus says, that are so predictable, they will pass away. But not my words. My words are more sure than those heavenly bodies. That is the kind of authority that Jesus speaks with. And then, let's talk about Son of Man. Notice several times in these passages, Jesus has spoken of himself as being the Son of Man. Some people take that to be a very humble way of Jesus referring to himself, which, of course, it does sound more uh, humble in some ways than like calling himself the Son of God, Son of Man. Ezekiel was called Son of Man uh, by the Lord. What does Jesus mean when he says the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins? The Son of Man will come with his holy angels and separate the wheat from the, from the chaff. The high priest in Matthew 26, when Jesus is on trial, remember all these false witnesses, are coming, they can't get the, the witness testimony to agree. And, 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 and you almost imagine Caiaphas in just exasperation finally saying to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And what he's referring to is Daniel chapter 7, where when all the beasts that are in that vision that Daniel had, representing these four world empires, and finally you have that boastful, uh, that, that boastful one from the fourth beast who is speaking these perverse things. The Son of Man comes on the clouds of heaven and approaches the Ancient of Days and receives this everlasting kingdom. The high priest knew exactly, and all the audience knew exactly what Jesus was saying here. He was claiming to be deity. He was claiming to be God. And so Caiaphas says, you have heard it from his own mouth. Blasphemy. He's claimed to be God. The Son of Man, this designation, Jesus is claiming to have this authority, that He's going to be the one who will come and judge Jerusalem, who will come and judge the world in righteousness, who has all authority because He's come to the Ancient of Days and He's seated now at the right hand of, of the throne of God, coming on the clouds of heaven. They knew exactly what He was referring to. Jesus has that kind of authority. And then finally, Matthew 28 the conclusion of Matthew is the same as it began. He is the son of David. And, and now that he's been raised from the dead and his disciples are gathered around him, before he ascends up into heaven, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Jesus has all authority. But Matthew also presents the disciples of, as having authority. Um, Matthew chapter 10. Turn over to 
Uh, actually, Matthew chapter 4. I want you to notice a couple of passages before we look at Matthew 10. In Matthew chapter 4, we have this introductory statement to the Sermon on the Mount where there, there's kind of a summary of Jesus' ministry at this time. In verse 23 of Matthew 4, he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Notice he's teaching, he's proclaiming the gospel, and he is healing. Teaching, proclaiming, and healing. Now look at Matthew chapter 9, which in a similar way serves as a prologue to the limited commission when Jesus sends out his disciples. Matthew 9 and verse 35, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues. Notice teaching and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And thirdly, healing every disease and every affliction. I believe Matthew puts those three things together, really two things, teaching or proclaiming or one thing, and then healing, because one underscores the other. One supports the other. Why did people know that Jesus spoke with such authority? How did they know this? Because Jesus worked these miracles. In the same way that Moses was highlighted as the mouthpiece of God, the representative of God before Pharaoh and before the people by the miracles that he did, Jesus, in a similar way, is, is showing that he has authority for his teaching because of these miracles. Now look at Matthew chapter 10. Before Jesus sends out the disciples on the limited commission, listen to what Matthew 10 says. Verse 1, he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. And then he lists the names of the disciples. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip, and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Two things here. Notice, Jesus gave the same ability he had to cast out demons, and notice it says he gave them authority over these unclean spirits in verse 1 to cast them out. And to heal every disease and every affliction, just like Jesus was healing these diseases and affliction. And I would suggest it's for the same reason. It was to show that they carried with them the authority of the king. And then he gives a list of these twelve. Why this list? I suggest it's not so that we have something to teach our children, you know, memorizing the names of the twelve apostles. That's that's not the point is to show that these men have authority. How do we know that the gospel of Matthew should be the gospel of Matthew? Why should we accept this as being an authoritative word from, from Christ? Because Jesus named Matthew as one of the twelve. And the same thing with John. This, this naming of the twelve apostles was a way of saying to everyone, these are my chosen representatives. They have the same authority that I have. I have delegated authority to them. And listen to the way that they're going to use this authority. Uh, Matthew 10 and verse 14, he says this in the context of commissioning them, sending them out. If anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust of your feet when you leave that house or town. And what's the consequence of rejecting their words, the words of the apostles? He says, truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah for that town. Now think about that. The words that 
these towns that have rejected Peter, Andrew, James, and John, when they reject the words of these men, it's as if they're rejecting the words of Jesus himself. Serious consequences. The judgment on, on Sodom and Gomorrah, that's nothing compared to what's going to happen when they reject your words. Because it's not your words, it's the words that I have given to you. That's the point. They have been given this kind of authority. Um, listen to Matthew chapter 16. This is right after Peter makes the good confession. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Uh, after Jesus says, on this rock I will build my church. He says in verse 19, I will give you, and he's speaking to the apostles, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. What's the purpose of the key? It's to open things. And it, and it shows that you have authority to go inside. Right? If someone has the key to my house, they have, they've been given that hopefully for me, and they have my permission to go inside, to open that door. What does he mean, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven? I want you to listen to a different translation that I think gets the tense of the verb more accurately. This is from the Holman Christian Standard Bible. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth is already bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth is already loosed in heaven. Now, this is important. Because there are some who say that the apostles possessed authority in themselves. They weren't just given authority from Christ. They possessed authority. And whatever they said is law. And that tradition of following the apostolic authority was passed on down through this apostolic succession that became basically the Catholic Church. And so whatever the church says, the church has authority. The church can make laws. That's not what Jesus is saying when he says, I give you the keys of the kingdom. He's saying, whatever you say has already been bound in heaven. They are simply relaying what the king has said. And that's the authority that they have. It's a delegated authority. And then just as Jesus is judge, uh, Matthew 19 and verse 28, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And then Matthew 28 and verse 18, after he commissions them, telling them that he has all authority, telling them to go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, notice, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And so all the words of Jesus have been delivered to the apostles, and now they, having the authority of the king, delegated authority from the king, they are to teach to us all things that Christ has commanded them, and thus their word comes with authority. Well, how was the authority of Christ and his apostles applied? Let's end the lesson now talking about what this means to you and me in a practical sense. Let's talk first about all about the words of Jesus. Remember we said the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, they were astonished because Jesus spoke as one who had authority and not as the scribes? Well, what did that sound like? This is what it sounded like. Matthew 5, 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Do you hear a difference? 
there. You've heard that it was said, but I say to you. Verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then it was also said, verse 31, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual morality, makes her commit adultery. You understand why I'm emphasizing those words? I say to you. Who speaks like that? Well, the scribes obviously didn't speak in that way. They would say, well, my interpretation of the law is this because this scribe said this and that rabbi said that, and so this is why you need to listen to my interpretation. Jesus isn't giving an interpretation of the law. He is laying down the law. And he's laying down the law in a way that no one before him had done, done that. Uh, when the prophets spoke in the name of the Lord, what would they say? They wouldn't say, I say to you, you need to all, all repent or God's going to judge you. What would they say? Thus saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. And even Moses himself, he would acknowledge that everything that he said was as the Lord had commanded him. Jesus didn't speak in that way. Jesus spoke as one who possessed authority in himself. And there's a difference. Oftentimes when Jesus would begin a statement to the people, he would say, truly I say to you, assuredly I say to you, or in John, truly, truly I say to you, or most assuredly I say to you. Literally in the Greek, what he's saying is amen. Amen, I say to you. Or amen, amen. I, what, what does that mean, amen? Why, did, why do you say amen to something? It's because you agree with it. You're affirming that it is true. You realize that Jesus isn't saying, thus saith the Lord. You need to listen to this because this is what the Lord has told me and I'm delivering it to you. He is giving amen to himself. We give amen when a man speaks scripture. We say, that's right. Amen. Jesus is amening himself. That is bold. Only someone who possesses authority in himself can speak in this way. And that means we've got to take those verses seriously. Because this is the king speaking to us with all authority. He is, he is not just, uh, he, is, he is the legislator, he is the executive branch, and the judge all in one. He possesses all authority. We must listen to everything that he says. I said we were going to get to 1 Corinthians. Have you ever noticed that Paul or Peter or one of the other apostles will begin their letters in this way? Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus. Why did they say that? Are they, are they boasting or bragging? No. When, when you go to a doctor's office, oftentimes what you'll see, well, almost every time what you'll see in the doctor's office are plaques up on the wall, framed uh, pictures of their degrees, their credentials. Are they boasting when they put those things up on the wall? No. What they're saying is, when I speak to you, I'm not just speaking to you as your friend next door. <laughs> I'm not giving you advice like the person on Facebook gives you advice. I am speaking as one who has the credentials and the authority to speak in this way. That's the reason why they have that on the wall. The reason Paul opens his letters by saying, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ, is he's saying, 
This isn't just me speaking. I'm speaking with the authority of Christ himself. And that's the way he interprets his own words. 1 Corinthians 5, when he's dealing with that brother who has his father's wife, and they're putting up with it, listen to what he says. When you're assembled in the name, which is by the authority of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the authority of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. In other words, this is not just my opinion of what should happen of what you should do. This is not just good wisdom. This is in the name of the Lord Jesus and with the authority, with the power of our Lord. Again, we don't really use the word Lord that often or understand what that means. The king has said, this is what must be done. And so we do what he tells us. That's the way the apostles would speak and that's the way they would write. Now, when they were asked a question, you know, there, there's a series of questions. Apparently the church had sent Paul a letter, and he begins in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1, now concerning the things of which you wrote to me. And he, he addresses all these questions. And some of these questions, he was kind of like me. That's a good question. I'm not sure. I don't have a direct statement from the Lord to answer this question. Paul is very careful. Actually, turn over to 1 Corinthians 7. I want you to see. I don't have this on the screen or in your notes. I want you to see the difference when he does have a clear message from the Lord, and when he doesn't, how he treats both. In, in verse uh, 10, well, let's start back in verse 8. Oh, no, look, yeah, verse 10, I'm sorry. He says, to the married, I give this charge. Not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. Verse 21, or verse 12, to the rest, I say, I, not the Lord. You see, and I'm not going to go into the answers or what he's saying here. I just want you to notice the way he frames these answers. When he has a clear director from the Lord, he says, this is not from me. This is from the Lord. But when he doesn't, he's still speaking with authority. I am saying this. In other words, there wasn't something that Je this wasn't something that Jesus directly spoke about in his ministry. <coughs> but I'm giving you some new information from the Spirit of God. And when it's neither, when it's neither something that was directly given by the Lord or something where he's given directions led by the Spirit of God with the authority delegated to him from Christ, this is the way he speaks. In verse 25, now concerning the betrothed, we would say those who are engaged. I have no command from the Lord. Notice, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. He doesn't speak in this way in verse 10. He doesn't speak in this way in verse 12. And, and let me just say, let me just back up and say to those of you who preach and teach, and I'm including myself in this, we need to be very careful in distinguishing between book, chapter, and verse, this is a commandment of the Lord, or this is something that we can clearly see, book, chapter, and verse, the apostles who were given authority by the Lord, this is what they have said, or when I'm stepping aside, I'm giving my judgment as one with whom the Lord has considered trustworthy. I'm giving my, my best guess on what would be pleasing to the Lord. We need to make a distinction between them. 
and make sure that we always respect and show that it's not about us. It's not about what we feel or what we think. I'm going to get on a soapbox here, but I get a little nervous sometimes when I either hear myself or somebody else a lot of I think or I feel or that's all well and good. But we need to get back to what has the Lord said and be standing firmly on his word, not just our opinions about things. Paul gives his opinion, but he's very careful to distinguish between the two. That's the care with which Paul used this authority. Now, most of the time, and I'm not going to go look at all these passages, but you can write this down if you want. 1 Corinthians 4.17, 1 Corinthians 7.17, 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 16, 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 1. Paul says something like this. As in all the churches of the saints, in other words, this is the universal practice among all the churches. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. In 1 Corinthians 4.17, the first of those passages, he says, I've sent Timothy to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. In other words, there's not a rule for Corinth and a rule for Galatia and a rule for Jerusalem. This, there's a universal practice and there's a universal law for all churches to follow. And I expect you to follow these rules because this is, again, a commandment of the Lord. He goes on, verse 36, and he's showing a little sarcasm here. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Are you the only ones that it reached? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. And then he says, if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. In other words, who do you think you are? Are you the only ones that receive this message? Do you think the... The, this, you are the standard by which we should be judged? Did the Lord tell you something he didn't tell me, an apostle? Well, I was being a little sarcastic here, but he just reminds them, when I speak to you, I'm not just giving my, my thoughts or my opinions or my prejudices. I'm speaking commands of the Lord, and that's why they must be recognized. And that's why we're having this series. Okay, This is the foundation we're trying to lay for the week. People say, well, what does it matter? how we worship. What does it matter how we organize? What does it matter how we go about the work that the Lord has given us to do? Isn't it all just kind of opinion? Isn't it all kind of subjective? Paul would beg to differ. As in all the churches of the saints, there's a common pattern. Now that's not to say that the pattern is always clear. And that's not to say that you can't ask a question of me where I just wouldn't know the answer. But I hope I'm honest enough to say, I don't know. I don't have a clear read from Scripture about exactly how to answer that question. But when we do, and when we know, we can't just disregard that and say we don't like that. We can't go through the Scriptures cafeteria style. You know, we went uh, to a nice buffet at Western Sizzling tonight, and I got to choose what I wanted. And I wanted a little this, and I wanted a little that. We can't do... The, 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 the Lord's Church is not a buffet where we get just to say, well, I... I'd like, I'd kind of prefer to have this style of worship or organization or whatever. It's not about me. 
and it's not about you. These things are commands of the Lord. And so I want to simply leave you with this challenge. Have you made an unconditional surrender to the Lord? We talked about the confession. We know that to become a Christian, you must believe that Jesus is the Christ. You must repent of your sins, turning from them and be baptized. We must confess, if you confess that Jesus is Lord, with the heart one believes the righteousness, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation, Romans 10 says. What does that mean, to confess that Jesus is Lord? It's to say that I am not Lord. It's not about me. Jesus is my King. He has all authority. Imagine this. When you are baptized, when you become a disciple of Jesus Christ, when you become a Christian, imagine that there is a throne in your heart. And up until this day, you have been sitting on that throne. But the moment that you confess that Jesus is Lord, you are getting up from that throne. You are stepping aside and inviting Jesus to sit there. And now He will guide your life. He is the one who will control your decisions, every part of your life. Every, every facet, every decision that you make must be influenced by what does the Lord want me to do with my life. And may that always be our attitude. Not just in matters of uh, corporately when we work together and worship together as a church, but individually in our lives. Every last part of my life must be influenced by that confession that I am making that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so if you're ready to confess that, if you're ready to make that unconditional surrender and lay down your life for the one who laid down his life for you, he is worthy of that kind of submission and service, to say the least. He laid down, he came from heaven. He gave up way more than any of us could even dream of giving up. You must now relinquish all your rights and say, I will lay down my life at your feet and everything that you say, I will do because you are ready to make that confession, be baptized into Christ. Why don't you come as we together stand and sing.